Well, good evening, everyone. We're continuing our series on death. What a happy message, right? It's our, it's our third week in this series on, our, uh, on death. Uh, in the first week, we talked about the eternality of death, that is the foreverness of death. And before that, we talked about the abnormality of death. No matter how common we try to make death with celebration of life services or even holidays to, to celebrate death, death is not natural. Death is an intruder. Death is an enemy. And to some, I imagine, you might be thinking, well, that's kind of harsh about death. You, you shouldn't speak so harshly about it. Recently, I was reading an article in Psychology Today by a psychologist named Meg Selig, and she recommend applying the three nice things rule about, uh, to death. You guys remember the three nice things rule? Remember when your sister uh, was really mean to you or that girl who was sitting in front of you class was just a total brat and then your mom or your teacher said, okay, now say three nice things about Susie. You remember that? Okay, it happened to me, a few of you. Uh, well, Meg Selig tried to do this. Meg Selig said, hey, okay, the, let, let's try to think of three nice things we can say about death. First, there will be no call centers in the afterlife. And she said, if there are, then she'll know for sure that she's in hell. Uh, second, there'll be no need for body maintenance. And I'm like, okay, I can get down with that. No need to brush your teeth or bathe or any of that stuff. We can put that aside. Uh, the third thing, she said, you can finally sleep through the night. And as a parent of a toddler, I, I really resonate with that one. But the article ended in a really interesting way. The last line of the article reads this way. She says, although I feel a little bit better about the great beyond I can't claim to accept the idea of my own death just yet, even after considering some of its benefits. You see, no matter how nice we make death, no matter how friendly we make it, we don't really want to get too close to it. I like the way the comedian Woody Allen put it. He said, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Something in us knows that death needs to be escaped. It needs to be defeated for us to have true peace and true rest. One of the core doctrines of Christianity, if you're exploring Christianity, is that death has been defeated. That Jesus defeated death for us. Nevertheless, there's often this lingering feeling that I'm not sure if you have. I know I experience sometimes, and I think it's actually the core to many of our doubts. And it's that, that question of, really? Like, but, 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 but did Jesus really de defeat death? Like, how do we know? I'm not sure how many of you watched cartoons as kids or watched superhero cartoons especially, but I never understood why at the end of an episode of Batman, no one would ever ask Batman, okay, but, but how do you know you really got the Joker this time? Like what makes this time different from all the others? Because every time you caught him and put him in jail, somehow he, he got out. How can we know for sure that, that you really defeated the Joker? Friends, death, is a supervillain. And there are many pseudo-heroes claiming to be close to defeating it 
or saying that they even have defeated it. And so the question that we're, we're coming at tonight is how can we be sure that Jesus really defeated death? This is the question I think the Apostle Paul was trying to answer in 1 Corinthians 15. Open there with me if you would. Maybe, maybe this is the hidden answer to all of our hidden questions about doubt. Are we sure that Jesus really defeated death? Well, the passage we're looking at tonight shows us, spoiler alert, that Jesus truly did defeat death. And the Apostle Paul wants us to know exactly how. Because if we no longer live with a fear of death, it will change everything. How we think about our death will change how we live our life. Again, look at 1 Corinthians 15 with me. I'm looking at the first three verses. Paul writes, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Basically saying this is what the good news is all about. This is the good news in which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Here's the first thing I want us to take away tonight. Jesus defeated death by dying. Now I know this seems kind of counterintuitive at first glance, and I want you to rest assured this wasn't something that made perfect sense to the original followers of Jesus. It was counterintuitive to to them as well. How can Jesus save us and secure our victory if he's dead? I mean, last I checked, dead people don't fight a lot of battles, let alone win any. Now, if, if you're not familiar with the history of Jesus, what happened there. From a human perspective, uh, what we see in Jesus is a revolutionary carpenter who gathers a large flock with his teachings on heavenly ethics, but begins to frighten the Jerusalem leaders so that they turn him over to the Romans to be executed through hanging on a cross. He's a revolutionary whose revolution got cut short by politics. But if, if that's the only perspective you have of Jesus, then what we would actually say is that death defeated him. But there's another perspective here, and that's the one we're wanting you to take away tonight. It's the perspective that Jesus was trying to give his followers the whole time, but not all of them got it. And that was that Jesus was not merely a human revolutionary. He was not merely human at all. It's that famous verse of John 3.16 that that really gets at this, where you've probably seen it held up at football games and different things like that. It's the verse where Jesus explains to Nicodemus, saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. What we see in Jesus is not merely a revolutionary carpenter, but the one who John reveals in his gospel as the word, saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. You see, this changes the whole story because what we see in Scripture is that death, 
spiritual death, separation from the joyous presence of God and the, and the eternal experience of his wrath is our greatest problem. It's in the nature of the God of the universe to be just, which means he, he must bring a just punishment to our sin. But this is why 1 Corinthians 15.3 is good news. Jesus Christ died for our sins. It's not just that the revolutionary carpenter was, a, was a, just such a good human that he was able to, to die in our place. Because once again, he, he was not nearly human. He was fully human and fully God. Just as God is fully justice and fully love. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 5. He says in Romans 5, 8 through 11, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by, the, by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We might rephrase this section to say, we are saved from God's wrath in death by God's death in wrath. God took the wrath on himself that we might have life. I know this is confusing, but look again at 1 Corinthians 15.3. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. You see, those, those last few words are paramount to our understanding of this. All throughout scripture, beginning with Genesis, we've seen that the price of sin is death. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, and so the only thing that God could do was kill animals in the garden to cover their sin as a sacrifice. All throughout the Old Testament, we, we see the Israelites are given rules about a sacrificial system so that they can slay animals to, to cover their sin. But what we see in the New Testament in Hebrews 10.4 was that none of that was meant to actually cover the sin, but rather point to the one who would cover the sin. Hebrews 10.4 says this, it says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was all pointing to Jesus. You see, this is the good news. He is the sacrifice. God himself was the sacrifice we needed. And his love and justice moved him to offer himself so that we might be restored to the one who is life. You see, our death was first a, a spiritual one. And by dying, Jesus entered into the belly of the beast so that he could empty death of its power over us. Because Jesus died, we have no more condemnation. That's the glory of Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus dying for our sins means no evil sticks anymore. It's, it's not me. It's, it's, it's not who I am. This should absolutely change our outlook on life. I mean, if you are in Christ, spiritually, you are alive. 
There is no atonement you need to seek outside of Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the scripture and satisfied every requirement for you to be free of sin's shame and guilt. You're done. You're done cleaning yourself up. Occasionally, I don't know why, but it grosses me out uh, occasionally. I'm not a vegetarian, but occasionally when I, when I eat meat, all of a sudden, if I think about it too much, I, I begin to think, ooh, there are dead things in my teeth. The, something that was once alive is now dead in my teeth. And once that feeling hits me, all of a sudden, I know it's weird. I keep a toothbrush in my draw on my desk. Don't judge me. All of a sudden, because I know it's going to come, I run to the bathroom. Like, i got to get that dead stuff out. <laughs> the good news of Jesus is that the death of your sin no longer sticks. Your spiritual teeth are forever clean. That shame to clean yourself up and make yourself presentable before God, that shame that is often driven by pride is empty of its power. There is no more condemnation. None. Jesus paid it all. He cleaned you entirely and you can finally rest. You see, Jesus defeated death in the soul by dying. But I think we would all agree our death isn't merely spiritual. <laughs> and so we might ask again, like I want to ask Batman, but did you really get him? Like, did, 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 did you really end him there, or did you just cripple him? I understand my spiritual death is dead, but I still see decay in my back aches, and the arthritis in some people's fingers, and the, the funerals of my loved ones. So look at 1 Corinthians 15, 12 with me. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ who he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... <laughs> Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And I imagine some of you are sitting here and you're like, wow, Paul is so repetitive. He just keeps making this point. Oh, you know, if Jesus isn't raised, then you're not raised. Then the dead aren't raised. And he keeps going back and forth. And you wonder, why is it so important that Jesus was raised from the dead? Well, I think in some ways it has to do with vindication. I mean, how many of you have seen those movies? Uh, I typically imagine Braveheart for some reason, though I'm sure it doesn't apply at all. Uh, but you imagine those movies where all of a sudden this guy goes into battle and he dies, and then everybody says, well, this one's for Johnny. 
We run for Johnny. We fight for Johnny. We will win the battle for Johnny. You know, if Jesus died and wasn't raised, then we're just doing this for Jesus. We're living this life for Jesus. But that's not what the gospel is. And praise God for that. We do not need to vindicate Jesus. His resurrection vindicates us. You see, our death was spiritual, but it was also physical. And his resurrection vindicates our life. You see, often we focus only on Jesus dying on the cross and then, and then talk about him raising once a year, right? When it comes to Easter, as though it's some sort of add-on special. You know, Jesus died for your sins. And guess what? He came back. Isn't that nice? We don't have to feel so bad. But... Jesus dying for your sins and Jesus raising from your sin, from, from his death for your sins is of equal importance. Him raising from the dead is what lets us know that we can have new life. You see, Jesus defeated death by living. He is alive. The grave couldn't hold him. And we're not saying that he decomposed and his spirit lives on. We mean he physically rose. You see, this was some of the confusion of his best friends. They wondered when they saw him, did we, did we just see a ghost? One famous story is of a man named Thomas, one of, again, one of Jesus' close friends, who's certain that, that all, the, all of his other friends, when they've seen Jesus, all they saw was a ghost. And he says, if I'm really going to believe this, if I'm, if I'm really going to put my life on this, I need to be able to put my fingers, I need to be able to put my fingers in the holes where Jesus was crucified and in his side where he was pierced. And then Jesus shows up, offering Thomas with all the physical proof that he needed. You see, Jesus, is, Jesus defeated death by dying and by living. Don't miss verses 20 to 23 here, though. I love these verses. 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. Do you see that word, first fruits? It appears again a second time, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Paul doesn't want you to miss this. It's an allusion to the feast of the harvest. It's an allusion just to harvest in general. Christ's bodily resurrection guarantees the future bodily resurrection of all believers, just as the first fruits of a harvest, the first ingathering, signaled a much larger crop to follow. Paul points out the, the parallel between Adam's sin leading to the sinfulness of all humanity and Christ's resurrection leading to the resurrection of all of his followers. He's saying, listen, because Christ raised, we can know that life has truly gone to all of us. And these benefits were absolutely necessary. You see, if all Jesus did was die for your sins, all you are is set to neutral. All the guilt, shame, all that, gone. But... Now you got to get the positive points. Negative points gone, but the positive points you have to add by, by doing really good and working yourself up so that you can be good enough now because he got rid of the messy stuff. My, uh, my in-laws love playing video games. My wife, her sisters, my brother-in-law, they all love video games, but video games stress me out. I, I, I hate 
video games. Occasionally I'll join them in playing, but when my character dies and I see in the upper left-hand corner how many lives I have, I get really tense. And I know it's just a game, but it gets me all worked up. I've, I've only got so many lives and I've got to make the most of them. I don't want to die and have to start over. Yes, even Mario Brothers really stresses me out. So my in-laws don't like playing with me. But the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, life doesn't run out. It keeps coming and coming. You know, as a kid, I remember going to the Borders bookstore uh, and running to the magazine rack. You guys remember that? The magazine rack at the Borders bookstore. I would dash there to try and get the next video game magazine. Once again, not because I was good, always bad at video games, but I would get that video game magazine to try and find the cheat codes. Anyone remember doing that? You'd try and find the cheat codes so that you can win your game and impress your friends about how good you were at the game. And so I would get that magazine. I would find a good cheat code. I'd run home to my N64 and I would press up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, left, up, B, left, right, A, B. And then I would get unlimited lives or at least a couple extra. Now, often the cheat codes I found didn't actually work, but they were worth the try. I had enough lives and slightly less stress so I could beat the game. But what Jesus offers is infinitely more valuable. It's not unlimited lives. It's not an extra life. It's not 10 more lives. It's not all oh, lives that just keep coming. It's unlimited life. There's no more death. Through Jesus, friends, we cheat death because he beat death. And so the stress of earning enough positive points is gone because his positive points are mine. The stress of making this one count dissipates because our meaning and value is found in eternity with him. In him, we, we not only spiritually, but physically live forever. But you got to ask the question, I mean, what's so special about this? I mean, I imagine some of you are thinking, I mean, cryogenic preservation is likely close to solving the problem of death. For a mere $20,000, I looked this up, uh, you can get a life membership at the Cryonics Institute, and you can be placed in a giant hydroflask-type thermos so that as science advances, you can be brought back to life and become immortal. Life can keep on going as science uh, goes back, and then it's like, oh, the death, the spiritual thing, the physical thing, well, what does it matter? Uh, but immortality alone doesn't solve the problem of death. Those of you here who enjoy Greek mythology uh, might remember the story of Tithonus. According to the story, Tithonus was a, a mortal man who became the lover of the goddess Aeus, who was the god of the dawn. Now, Aeus asked Zeus to make Tithonus immortal, but she forgot to ask that he be granted eternal youth. So here's a, a reading from uh, the book of Homer. <laughs> Tithonus indeed lived forever, but when loathsome old age pressed full upon him, and he could not move nor lift his limbs, 
This seemed to her in her heart the best counsel. Aeus laid him in a room and closed the door. There he babbles endlessly, and no more has strength at all, such as once he had in his supple limbs. In later tellings of the story, he eventually becomes a cicada. I don't know how that works. If you become old enough, you become a cicada. Uh, But eternally living and begging for death to come. You see, it's possible that cryonics may one day be able to keep humanity's heart beating a little bit longer. But it can't conquer the natural decay of our perishable bodies. I think this is perhaps the most exciting part of how we know that Jesus truly defeated death. Yeah, he defeated it by living. He defeated it by dying. But I really think this, most importantly, we can know that Jesus defeated death by transforming. Look again with me at 1 Corinthians 15, but look down at verse 50. Paul says this, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body put on immortality. Jesus defeated death by transforming. Our bodies are perishable, says Paul, and science says the same thing, if you didn't know. 60% of our DNA is the same as bananas. Our bodies are just as perishable. We just have a slightly longer shelf life. But not so with Jesus. Verse 52 says, if we are in Christ, we will be raised. It's not that we'll be destroyed and reincarnated into a different existence. We don't go from being a banana to banana bread. That's what makes Christianity different from every other religion. We truly continue on. You see, this isn't cryonics so that we're raised to life only to die again in an endless dying. That was Jesus's friend Lazarus's experience, risen from the dead, but eventually Lazarus once again dies. Here, we're talking about an indestructible life, free from the bondage of decay. Paul makes the point in verse 47, if you want to look there, he says, the physical body we have now is the same as Adam's, made from the dust of the earth, and we'll return to that. But whereas our first body has all the limitations of our earthiness, the second body, for those who are in Jesus, has all the capacity of God's spirit. When you think about it this way, verse 50 is obvious. (laughs) Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God because decay and corruption can't be a part of what is eternally incorruptible. You see, in Jesus, we are transformed. And that changes everything. It brings joy, anticipation, and excitement to the end of this life as we look forward to the life to come. 
It robs death of the fear it inspires in us. So much so that Helen Keller, the famous woman who was deaf and blind, said this about death. She said, death is no more than passing from one room into another. But there's a difference for me, you know, because in that other room, I shall be able to see. I like the way the author, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, put it. She said, if you were to tell the tiny acorn that one day it would be as tall as a building with heavy branches and thick green leaves, a tree so great it would house many squirrels that, uh, that nut would say that you were crazy. <laughs> a gigantic oak tree bears absolutely no resemblance to an acorn. Yet somehow within that acorn is the promise and pattern of the tree it will become. She ends, and somehow within you is the pattern of the heavenly person you will become if you are in Christ. Imperishable, incorruptible, as God is. Jesus defeated death by dying. He defeated death by living. And he defeated death by transforming. But I, I said at the beginning that what you think about your death should change how you live your life. And there, there still may be a sense in which you're not sure how you live your life differently based on just knowing he died, he lived, he transformed. Surely if you... If you follow Jesus, you think about death and life, how you think about those things should be different. But how about how you live it? Here's what I think is clear in this passage and throughout Scripture. If you truly believe that Jesus defeated death, this should make you unstoppable. It should make you unrelenting unyielding, uncompromising. It should keep you on mission in absolutely every scenario and experience because the greatest enemy, the only thing this world can truly threaten you with has lost its sting. Let's finish this passage together. Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the big therefore where we get this from. Therefore, my beloved brothers, with all this in mind, with everything we've studied, with seeing that Jesus defeated death by dying, living, and transforming, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul says, listen, if this is your reality, keep going. Nothing should stop you. Nothing should move you away from your work in the Lord. In fact, as you get closer to your foreseeable death, you should only be growing in greater excitement for how you can be on mission because you're that much closer to seeing Jesus face to face, to tell him and to hear from him, well done. You see, this is how Paul lived. 
Think about that famous verse in Philippians 1, verse 21, where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Think about that and from the situation that he's in. Paul is in prison as he's writing the letter to the Philippians. He's facing the possibility of execution. The Romans want to shut him up. And to stop Paul, they'll do whatever they can think of to accomplish. And so surely they think, well, let's just kill him. Let's kill Paul. That'll teach him. And it'll show his follow followers as he cowers in fear of death. And Paul res Paul's response to that is, oh, that's nice. To die is gain. I get to go be with Jesus. And so the Romans have to stop. Okay, well, we, we don't want him to have gain. And we don't want his followers to be like, oh, we well, just gained there. So never mind. We're not going to kill you. We're just going to let you live. We're going to let you live and you're going to rot in prison. He goes, oh, well, <laughs> that means I get to keep on serving my Lord Jesus and to live as Christ. There's no stopping this guy. The great 19th century Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren said of Paul here, many of us cling to life with a desperate clutch, like some poor wretch pushed over a precipice and trying to dig his nails into the rock as he falls. Some of us cling to it because we dread what is beyond and our longing to live is the measure of our dread to die. But Paul did not look forward to a thick darkness of judgment or to nothingness. He saw in the darkness a great light, the light in the windows of his father's house. And yet he turned willingly away to his toil in the field and was more than content to drudge on as long as he could do anything by his work. Friends, if you are in Christ, that should be death to us. It's simply seeing the Father has left a light on for us to come home. And if death is prolonged, there's simply more work to do. Death is defeated. You don't need to fear it. You don't need to live in fear. In Christ, not only are you transformed in death, but your life is transformed in the face of death. Before I came on staff at the Moody Church, I worked for an organization called Johnny and Friends that was led and founded by a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. I quoted her just a little bit before about the acorn. Johnny was, uh, has an interesting story. She was 18 years old when she broke her neck in a diving accident and was diagnosed with quadriplegia. The inability to move her arms and legs. She uses a power chair and is unable to brush her own hair or teeth or dress herself. Johnny's life was changed by that accident, but she knew it wasn't changed forever. And this changed everything. She's 70 years old now, and she continues to serve Jesus by bringing the Gospels to other families affected by disability. She still battles chronic pain. She's faced breast cancer twice already. She's been on the brink of death multiple times. But with Christ, the threat of death has lost its sting. I love this quote from her. She says, Jesus is ecstasy beyond compare. And if new hardships draw us closer to him, I'm more than content with it. For the one who is in Christ 
Death is simply the acorn becoming the tree. You see, for Johnny, there's, there's no sting. Death is gain. No longer needing her wheelchair and getting to be in the presence of her Lord and Savior. To live is continued work and love for Christ. Friends, how you think about your death will change how you live your life. Would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, thank you for dying that we might die to sin. Jesus, thank you for living so that we might have eternal life through you. Jesus, thank you for transforming so that we might be incorruptible in your glorious presence. And thank you, Jesus, for defeating death and inviting us into life. Amen.